So we have been in this letter to the Philippians, and we have looked at, on, particularly on Resurrection Sunday and Easter Sunday, uh, we looked at what I keep calling the beating heart of the letter, which is this beautiful poem, hymn, some call it, right in the middle, that talks about the uniqueness of who Jesus is, how Jesus shows us what it means to be human. Jesus perfectly embodies who God is in the world. We get to see the full character of God on display. And why I've been calling it the beating heart is because most scholars agree that it really feeds the content of the rest of the letter. Everything is, is going back to it. So in the last couple weeks, what we've seen is that Paul builds on that central image of Jesus' description, articulation of who Jesus is, by saying, this is what that looks like fleshed out in, in life. Um, this, is, this is what a, a Christ-like life looks like. And he uses himself as an example. He uses his couple of friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he's been trying to give them real, living, breathing examples of what embodying this ourselves in, in our own time and space would look like. And today's text is not, is not unrelated to that, and, and we'll get to that eventually. But he also comes in in this text, and, and if you were listening closely as Kathleen was reading, he comes in with a little bit more warning, um, because there's also counter examples to these things. And so today, that's kind of what we see, is, is we see him warning against uh, one particular temptation to not live in this way, and then he finishes it with yet another articulation of what this might actually look like for us to, to live um, as Jesus would, would have us to live and as Jesus himself modeled and exampled um, perfectly for us to live. And so let's jump in. Uh, Philippians 3, be good for you to actually be uh, in the text. So you can grab a Bible uh, underneath a chair in front of you or on your phone or whatever, but it would be good to, for you to be looking at what I'm looking at here. So Philippians chapter 3. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Some, some people think like he started to sum up the letter and then just kept going. Um, uh, or he's just uh, summing up the, the prior one, no big deal. But for some reason, he's, uh, he feels like he needs to reiterate this idea of rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I do like this next sentence. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, it's not exactly clear if he's talking about if the same things that he's writing are what he's just said in the prior passage about this is what it looks like to live Christ-like, or if it's what he's about to say in terms of these warnings that he has. Whatever it is, I think it's an interesting concept that whichever one it is, that this is clearly something that Paul has talked to this community about before. And in some ways, I don't even mean this tongue-in-cheek, but in some ways I find this encouraging as a pastor, is it's such a reminder that any given community needs to hear certain things again and again and again, and that that's, not, that's, that's neither an indictment on the community nor on the teacher, right? Like, it's just the way we are as human beings, is there are certain reminders that... Uh, I once had a seminary professor who would say, you know, uh, the great temptation as a teacher is to believe you need to bring something unique every single time, whereas so much of the Christian life is actually just being reminded of things you already know. And I think that there's so much truth in that, is um, this is even why I believe the people of God gather every Sunday, is we just need to be reminded. It's why we come to this very same table and sacrament every single week. We just need to remember. We need to be reminded. And I love what Paul says, is he says, look, I'm not frustrated. I know we've talked about this before. And it's not frustrating. That's actually really the word that he's talking about here. He's like, I'm not, 
uh, probably the best like English word is like vexed. I'm not vexed by this. Um, it's okay for me. It's not troublesome for me. And then I love the word that he chooses. He says, and it's safe for you. He says, look, there's a kind of protection that comes when we are consistently reminded of the right things because we are so unbelievably prone to wander, right? Like as that great hymn says, we are prone to forget. We are prone to begin to believe other things. We are prone to doubt. And if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, I think one of the common experiences that you have is maybe unexpectedly in the course of a of a gathering or in the course of whatever discipleship course or, or while you're interacting with, with a fellow brother or sister, that suddenly there's this like reminder thing that happens. You're like, oh yeah, I just forgot, right? Like I forgot how good God is. I forgot how much he has done for me. I forgot um, that he has answered my prayers and he has been faithful, right? And I love that um, that that exists, you know, in the first century, in the earliest churches we have, right? These people weren't, Paul wasn't such a good teacher that he could say things once and they were like fully obeying it. We're good, Paul, right? And these were not super people um, who had a different kind of struggle with their faith than we do. These were people like us who needed to, to be reminded of things 20 years um, into walking faithfully with Jesus and go, oh, yeah, I'm so prone to forget that. Now it gets serious. Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who, who in the world is he talking about here? It, it, um, look out for the dogs, uh, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. I won't go into this too much um, because I, I just don't, I don't feel like it's, it's quite worth the time because of our context is so different. But most New Testament scholars would agree these are what are classically called the Judaizers. These are false teachers who came into these early Christian communities and they said, if you're going to be real Christians, if you're going to be like legit, like varsity Christians, you're going to have to become uh, ethnically, culturally, religiously Jewish first is basically what's going on here. And... Um, and this was pretty pervasive. I mean, you, you hear this echoed in, in a lot of Paul's letters and even in some of the other letters in the New Testament is that this was a consistent thing going on, which if you think about it, right? Like the people of God up until this time are very much defined by a particular ethnic, religious kind of background. And now you have Jesus comes, who's part of that religious, ethnic, cultural background. And it's very confusing to these early Christians of like, what about all of that stuff for literally centuries about being faithful Jewish people, about, you know, all of the things that, that are coming up here, about keeping kosher, about being circumcised, about uh, ritual laws and all of these things. Like, you're telling me just all of that stuff is completely done. Like, no, 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 no. Clearly that stuff pleased God. Clearly God wanted us to do that stuff. And so, like, now we need to do that stuff plus be Jesus people. And Paul's consistent call throughout his letters is um, adding anything to the full sufficiency of Jesus for full salvation um, are adding things that Jesus himself has not called us to and actually war against what the gospel is meant to do, which is to transcend culture and ethnic background and all of these things. And there's a new way of, of being um, 
the people of God that's not defined by these ritual purity laws, that aren't exclusionary, but that are actually purposely, right, our vision here at Jacob's Wells, breaking barriers to encounter Jesus together, that Jesus intentionally brings down all kinds of barriers in order that all peoples might encounter him. And so this is, um, while a very clearly, right, like clearly Paul sees this as this unbelievably massive threat to the unity of the early church, it's actually quite an understandable false teaching and misunderstanding of what Jesus is doing. Um, and yet Paul feels the need to vigorously uh, speak against this and teach against this. And he does it really interestingly by kind of turning the tables on these false teachers. Because what these false teachers would have said is that the non-Jewish, these non-Jewish early Christians, these Gentile believers, um, we have tons of documentation that, uh, that there was, you know, sort of name-calling um, from, from the particularly kind of pure religious ethnic community of Jewish people into the surrounding Gentile world, guess what they would have called them? They would have called them dogs. They would have called them workers of evil. They actually would have called them mutilators of the flesh because part of the pagan rituals of those times were a kind of um, cutting of the flesh that was clearly prohibited in the Old Testament. And so who, what is Paul doing here? He's actually taking those exact insults and he's putting them back on these false teachers and he's saying, you think that they are the dogs when actually by going against what Christ has called us to, you are the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we, and he's talking about Jew and Gentile together under Christ, united um, by faith in Jesus. We are the, and we might throw in there parenthetically, the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. He's borrowing language from Jesus. Um, this is actually language that comes from Jesus' interaction at Jacob's Well, the very place where we get our name, where Jesus says that the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth by the Spirit of God, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory not in their religious performance, not in ethnic cultural categories, but glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what he's saying here is that actually don't allow these Judaizers to make you believe that you are somehow either sub-Christian or non-Christian because of non-essential categories that they are adding to the full sufficiency and centrality of Christ himself. And it begs the question, does such a thing an instinct live on in the life of the church up until our day? And I would say a hearty, absolutely, of course, right? It's not Judaizers in this case, um, but that, that instinct to say, are you, I, know, I know you're claiming to be a Christian and you trust Christ, but are you the right kind of Christian? And we add all kinds of categories to that of what the right kind of Christian believes and does. And, if I may be so bold, how the right kind of Christian votes and what the right kind of Christian sees as the right kind of political issues and stances. Right? This is something that the church has always needed to weed out. Christ is central. 
Christ is all. Christ is sufficient for salvation. We need to be very careful when we begin to define what the right kind of follower of Jesus is and what the wrong kind, who is in and who is out. Um, <laughs> uh, it's quiet in here. Um, right? We are, we are living in a moment where this is, this is pretty clear in terms of our cultural moment where this stuff lives, right? This, this right-left nonsense, this here, here is the package of issues that, the, that a good kind of Christian cares most about. Um, if you believe this, then, then by definition you're out. If you didn't vote for this person, then obviously you're not a Christian, um, right? We just went through a week where Roe v. Wade is the conversation, and that is like, what was your first instinct, right? Where did you go in order to figure out, hey, what's the right way to respond to this, right? Um, if that was primarily a political category rather than a, hey, how, how does my Christian faith inform this? And I'm not even saying what you should have thought, right? Like, but what was your instinct, right? Like, where did you go to figure out, wow, what's, what's my distinctly, uniquely Christian response to this? If that wasn't the first instinct, but it was, what do the sort of people whose opinions of me matter most and have the kinds of views that I believe are the right kinds of views, what do they think on this, right? Like, that should tell you something. Um, this is the great threat to a, a church, a community, a movement like ours in America, is this idea that there are the right kinds of Christians and the wrong kinds of Christians, and that that's defined by things like who, who you get into a voting booth and vote for, as though it's that simple. Um, I think that I can fairly confidently say that's a Judaizing instinct. That's a Judaizing kind of move. And I don't like the Judaizing. We've been through so much historically um, with uh, anti-Semitism and all that. Let's find another way to say it. But that instinct to say right and wrong kinds of Christians, um, we need to be very careful about that as a community, right? Like even as you look at, if I may be so bold, even as you look at social media of people within this very church, right? Are you in, inside kind of going, who's the right kind of Christian? Who's the kind of Christian that I'm glad I'm in church with them? And who are the type that I'm a little embarrassed I'm in church with them, right? That nonsense, if, if it's not about the sufficiency of Christ and, and the, the full authority of Christ in life, and it's on secondary things, not that some secondary things don't matter, not that these issues don't matter, not that, hear me, not that Christians can't and even shouldn't have massive disagreements on these things. It's this instinct to say, you're out, you're a dog. Right? You're a dog, you're a mutilated, you're no better than the rest of them. Whoa, Christian, right? These things matter. These issues matter deeply. But can we be the kinds of Christians who can actually get in a room and say, hey, do you think circumcision is necessary? Right, I'm using the first century example. Yeah, I do. Hey, can we talk about that? Because, you know, whatever, right? Like, think about it, right? They're talking about circumcision. Like, you talk about awkward issues, um, <laughs> right? Like, so it's like, you know, I am or I'm not, right? Like, circumcision. Um, so what does that mean for me? Well, yeah, no, I don't think you're a dog, but here's, here's what I, right? Like, that's how Christians talk to each other. You don't point finger and say, dogs, right? One of the things that I can't help but, but get out of here is it's so interesting because check out what Paul says next. He says, though I myself have confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he reads off his Jewish resume, right? Notice, I think this is a word for us, notice who gets to call these Judaizers dogs 
one of their own. You see that? I remain convinced. You will hear me say this all throughout, I don't know, forever. Um, I was going to say the election season, but we're always in election season. Um, I think we begin to win as Christians when we're able to prophetically point out the hypocrisy within our own tribe and not always have our instinct be to point across and to say, dogs, right? Part of what Paul is doing is he's embodying. He says, I know these folks. This is my upbringing. This is my tribe. This is my training. This is my theological bent. This is what I studied. I know it deeply. I embodied it. I lived it. I believed. I w- I'm all in on it. These are my friends. These are my family members. These are my cousins. These are my aunts and uncles. I get to say dogs. I get to say you're being hypocrites. I get to say unhelpful. You're becoming the thing you claim to despise, right? That's what he's doing, right? Because this is what we always do. When we go to secondary things and begin to say right type person, wrong type person, is we become the thing that we despise. The one who's calling that out is one of their own from within the tribe. And I think right now it's just a little bit too easy, even as a thoughtful Christian, to always be able to point out the hypocrisy over there and believe you're doing something courageous when you know in your heart, I know in my heart, right? Like I do this. I'm not immune to this. I know the far more courageous thing is to turn to the people whose opinions of me I basically, you know, that matter to me, who I basically agree with, what I perceive as like, yeah, if there's a right kind of Christian, it's probably a person who has this kind of constellation of issues, and to turn to them and say, are you sure you're getting that right? Hey, we should probably speak up on this one. We were really loud on that one. We should probably speak up on this one. Anybody willing to do? Okay, no, okay, no, we're, we're not, right? That's way more terrifying than there they go again, the dogs. Hear what I'm saying? Okay, now Paul goes into, so that's the warning part. There you go. Exhale. Whew. Happy Mother's Day, right? Like still, <laughs> get your flowers afterwards. Um, now he's going to show us yet another example of what Christ-like embodiment of um, handling these very real differences and realities is. So he says, I, I have way more reason for confidence in the flesh. Circumcised on the eighth day. <laughs> I bet that's not on your resume. I was thinking that this week. I was like, we do the circumcision stuff and we just think it's like, yeah, whatever, circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcised, the first thing he says, uh, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's re- he, look, we can go through these bit by bit. He's saying, I'm from the right type of people. I'm from the right tribe. I'm from the right school of thought. Um, Pharisees get get a bunch of uh, sort of misplaced, misunderstood hate from Christians because Jesus is constantly going after the Pharisees. Jesus goes after the Pharisees because they're so close to getting it. He does not go after the Pharisees because they're so far off. He goes after the Pharisees because they're a half step from really, really getting it and embodying it which, by the way, is the consistent pattern of Jesus. The people who, like, really don't get it, the people who are way off on things, right? Like, people who, you know, um, have certain occupations. I don't know if there's little kids in here. Have certain occupations in the New Testament, right? What is his approach to those people? Gentle. 
kind comes alongside them, right? Like it's the people who are so close to getting it that Jesus goes, don't you see it? You study these things, he says to the Pharisees. You study them. You know that I'm the culmination of all this. You know what you're hoping for. You know it all leads to a Messiah who will somehow cleanse the people, who will somehow come and not vanquish just your your external oppressors, but will do something with your hearts and give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I'm doing that. Don't you see that I'm doing that? And I'm doing it for you. And you guys should be the ones who move forward and say to people, like, this is what we're longing for for generations. This is why we were so holy and good and righteous, because we were preserving something good in the people of God. So that when Messiah came, we could say, there he is. I'm here. Right? There is one Pharisee, we find out, who gets it, right? Like, this is what Paul is saying. And so Jesus is so... Um, vehement with these Pharisees, not because they're bad people, but precisely because they're, they're, they're just good enough to not get it. <laughs> you know? Like, and that stuff still goes on, right? Like, some of the people are so close, right? Like, I wonder, who would Jesus come to today? And so you're so close, you get it in so many ways, but you're missing what I've actually called you to, right? What he so often asks of the Pharisees, he says, you just miss that it's about loving other people. You forgot people, in all of your zeal to be the right kind of people of God, right? I think that's a word, right, for the church today, for people like us. You get it right in so many ways, but you forgot it's about people. You forgot it's about love. It's not just about theological purity, right? Okay, so Paul is saying all these things. He's like, that's me. That's me. I'm that guy, right? Like, I have way more reason. If you want to play the, like, who's the right kind of Christian and equals the right kind of Jewish person. He's like, I'm that person. Let me tell you how I think of that as a follower of Jesus. He says, verse 7, this is one of the key verses in this entire letter. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. There's one worth memorizing. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him and be found in him. I'll just stop there. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What he's saying is in comparison to the great worth of knowing Jesus, any external secondary qualification I have is meaningless. It's worth nothing. The image that he's getting at here is he says, I will stand in front of the creator of the universe one day, and if what I bring with me is, look at my Pharisee school degrees, if I bring with me, yeah, but God, wasn't I like the best at the religious thing? He says, that's... That's not what I want to be found in. Love this language of, I want to be found in Christ. And the found there is is something that happens to you. And I think he's talking about ultimately in the end. He says, I want to get to the end. And when God finds me and finds what I have to present to him ultimately in the end, I don't want it to be something from me because I've played that game. And I know that it falls short, right? Like I am not sufficient to give something to God to where God will say, oh, I'm amazing. I had no idea. You come, come in. We need you, right? Like I need what you bring to the table. He says, no, I want to be found 
in Christ. And I think that part of what he's getting at here is that, in fact, what I began to realize is that some of this stuff kept me from my ability to pursue God because of the extent to which I had founded my identity. I put the roots of my identity into these things. When I was working on campus, uh, I remember asking students, like, I think that part of what Paul is getting here is when you first meet someone, and I was at a, uh, I was at a specific campus just south of here that has a particular culture to it where uh, there's a particular need for people to feel like um, they, uh, they're impressive um, to other people because they feel like uh, everybody else is impressive, so I've got to be impressive. And I would ask students, uh, let's play that game for a second. Like, what are the first five things that you would want someone to know about you if they asked you, right? Like, and you begin to sort of do that thing um, where you tick off your, your little ready-made resume um, of like, oh, well, thank you for asking. Um, well, I just got back from a gap year. Are you aware of what that is? It's a very interesting thing, um, right, or whatever it is. Uh, and, I would, I, and what I would say is, um, right, and you have your version of that. And I have my version of that. It's an interesting question to say, okay, take those things and really think about, are those things that are net adds to your ability to pursue Christ with a whole heart, or are they often the things that compete with your ability to pursue Christ with a whole heart? Right? I'm successful in my career. I've made this much money, um, whatever it is. Right? Now, there may be some lovely things in there, and I don't think that what Paul is saying is all of this stuff is bad. All of this stuff is evil. He's, he's, remember, he's making a comparison here. He's saying, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, which is the point of human existence, is that you would have relationship with your creator. He said, compared to the whole reason why I was put on this planet, anything that even remotely wars against that is lost. He's using accounting imagery here, which I don't understand accounting. We have accountants here. And so there's assets and liabilities. Right? That's a thing. Exactly, I know. Mark's like, neither do I. Um, uh, my accountant, so thank you, Mark. Um, right, assets and, and liabilities. And he's saying um, what's so easy is to right, take, take the assets of our lives and purely evaluate them by, by worldly standards and say, yeah, the world thinks that this is, this is a life well lived, right? This is what's on that side for me. He says, when I came to know Christ and what he requires of me, I began to realize that some of those need to change categories. Some of those were liabilities. Some of those were actually things that made it difficult for me to go all in with Jesus. Here, yet again, we hear sort of the ba-boom, 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 the beating heart of the letter. Because once again, he's borrowing from the imagery of the, that hymn in, in chapter 2. Let me just show you a visual of this. Um, the little like that. There you go. Here's one way to conceive of what's happening in that Christ hymn, right? Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, et cetera, et cetera. Is that Jesus's choice is to go from immense privilege, though he was in the form of God, to actually emptying himself, right? By taking the form of a servant. And in response to that emptying and lowering, he is therefore highly exalted by God. This is what Jesus chooses to do. He goes from immense privilege, immense rights, immense, um, right, like un, unparalleled, right? He's the creator of the universe receiving the worship of the entire cosmos, 
lowers himself, taking the form of a servant. And this is the key word in some ways in the hymn is that therefore, that in response to that choice, God highly exalts him. And the language of highly exalted is, seems to indicate that where Jesus ends up ultimately after this choice is actually in some ways higher than where he began, which is wild. Right? That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's something that happens after this choice to do this. What we said when we were talking about the hymn is that that's the exact opposite of the human story, which is this. Next one. Nope, next one. Sorry. Adam. Here's, here's our original parents, right? You can throw Eve up there, Adam and Eve. They are formed from the dust of the ground. They are clearly made lower than God. What they try to do is that they believe the voice of the enemy who says, you could become like God. Just come up here. He's withholding from you. But you could become like God, and it will be amazing if you would just t- disobey him and actually run things on your own, which results in the curse, which is this clear indication that where they're at after this choice is actually lower than where they began. Jesus is the inversion of that choice. Now, here's what Paul is doing in our current passage. He says, I have incredible reason for confidence in the flesh. I have a lot going for me. I have degrees. I have the right ethnic background. I have the right religious practice behind me. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. I've suffered the loss of all things. I have willingly put those things aside that I might end up in a higher place than where I began. But if you want a one-liner for this passage, right? is one thing that the Apostle Paul is trying to get at, is for the follower of Jesus, the only way up is down. The only way up is down. The only way to attain to what Jesus actually has for us, which in this passage we'll talk about in other passages, but but he captures by this idea of attaining the resurrection, being there at the end, being acceptable at the end. He says there's a giving away that's going to need to happen. The question becomes, what's the essential difference between which sort of chart your life ends up looking like. I can, think of, I can think of one thing at the beginning of this that I do think makes a big difference. I was thinking about this a lot this week. It's like, what, what makes the difference? I think one thing that makes a huge difference is, like, take, take the difference between Adam and Paul. I think a massive difference there is where each of them believed they began. Meaning, if you see yourself as someone who has fundamentally had things withheld from you by God, you are going to see yourself as in a low place. And so, and so you deserve more, right? I, I got to go up. Like, I deserve more. I can grasp at more. I can earn more. I can, by sheer force of will and my own whatever, like, I deserve more, right? And that often ends with, with, this, with this fall. You end up in a lower place, right? Like, and this is like, This is where we have to have eyes to see why, like, culture and media exist, right? Like, this is the lesson of the media. Are people who seem to ascend and have everything, very, very often, it's why we make shows about it, end up in lower places than even where they began, though they at some point reach great heights. I think that what Paul does here is he fundamentally sees himself as in a position of privilege, 
as having a lot going for him, as saying, confidence in the flesh, I got plenty of it. I have a lot that I could claim according to the world standards that's really, that's really like enviable from the world. And I think that that allows him, because he sees himself as one who has not had something withheld, to say, but if there's more and if that stuff competes, then, then I'm going down. If the way down is up, then I'm going down, right? Then I'll give it up. Then I'll suffer the loss of all things. And so I think that it very simply becomes this, this last little visual here, which is where, where, how do you conceive yourself, right? And if, you, and if you were to kind of fill these in for yourself, though I have confidence in the flesh, and you can list off, here are the things that I got going for me. Here are the things that the world would be envious of. Can you, can I honestly evaluate those things and say, but to the extent to which they compete with my ability to be all in for Jesus and to make the first thing, the first thing, the main thing, the central thing, the core pursuit of my life, I'll lay it aside. Believing that the only thing that matters about my life is whether I get there in the end. Thinking about this text and thinking about it with Mother's Day, the, the the only thing that really came to mind for me, honestly, was my mom, who would say consistently to my sister and I, she would say all the time, she's like, just be there at the end. Just be there at the end. And maybe you grew up with a similar, um, incredibly privileged to have that spiritual heritage of a mom who, like, that was the most important thing to her, right? It wasn't degrees, and it wasn't success, and it wasn't money, and all. She was like, just be there at the end. By the way, if you don't know, if you're like, what does that mean? She means at the end, like the end end. Like at the resurrection, make sure that when you show up, you are what Paul says he wants to be, which is found in Jesus. Just get there. Your life could go through ups and downs, peaks and valleys, really hard stuff, really great stuff. Just get there, right? And Paul is saying, I am willing. The, the analogy that, uh, that the reformer John Calvin, um, you may know that name from your, from your history classes. Calvin says the, the image here is almost that of a, of a ship that's caught in a storm, and when a ship is caught in a storm and it's trying to weave its way through, do you know what the, what the crew begins to do? I just learned this this week. They begin to throw stuff overboard. Um, and the reason, I actually called, uh, my brother-in-law is a, is a commander in the Navy. He's a big deal in the Navy. And he literally like, was in charge of a whole ship, which is crazy. And I was, like, um, I was like, Matt, why do they, I get to call him Matt. <laughs> But uh, um, I asked them, I said, I said, what's that deal? Why, why do they throw it over? Like, like give me the, the, and we didn't get to talk for that long because my sweet little niece was in the hospital. But the reason seems to be because um, you got to lighten the load in order to go faster, in order to get out of trouble. And it makes you more nimble. And part of actually what they do is that they very strategically, because to go that way in a ship, sometimes you need more weight on this side. So sometimes what they do is they'll throw this stuff off so that this side could go, oh, ooh, that was kind of a nice effect. Um, so that this side could go a little bit faster. It's a really good image. It's saying in the storm that is life where there is peril around you, where the temptation to bail and to shipwreck your life and your faith, is it worth it to throw some things aside every now and then to make sure you're there in the end, to make sure you're afloat at the end, right? And so what's, what's that for you right now, right? What's competing? What's weighing you down quite literally? As life is throwing all sorts of stuff at you, what are you holding on to and saying, no, this is too precious. It's got to stay on board. 
when what Paul would tell you, when what anyone who's made it to the end would tell you is, it ain't worth it. It's not worth it compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, being there in the end, and attaining to the resurrection of the dead. He says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that, and I love this, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It's an acknowledgement, right? He says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings. This is a beautiful phrase, that I might know the koinonia of his sufferings. Look, there is, I think that this is why we return to this point so often again and again, especially in the letters of Paul, is he saying, look, if, if, if life is a journey and the waves are real and we may need to jettison things at times, then suffering, loss, grief, pain, struggle, it's just going to be part of the deal, you know? No one, no one heads out as the crew of, of a ship, right? Back in, back in the days of the images that I'm sure you're calling to mind as I'm calling images to mind. Like, this is going to be so nice. Like, this is my vacation for the year, right? Like, you are signing up knowingly for a kind of suffering. And I think any Christianity that's billed to you as you go from strength to strength, victory to victory, good thing to good thing, life just gets better, you just wait and see, is, is fu- it's dogs, right? Like, those are dogs feeding you that stuff. Because that is an impoverished, right? Whereas that is guaranteeing you a kind of riches and wealth and whatever. It is actually impoverished. It is the exact opposite. That the richness of the Christian life is found in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, of actually being willing to go through that hard stuff and to say, if Jesus did it, then I know that he's here with me. And if he's the only thing that I can hold precious through this difficulty, then I'm going to believe that it's sufficient because that's where I'm headed, because that's the goal in the end anyway. One scholar says, you know, in this passage, it's like Paul says he spent his whole life trying to make the grade only to realize that he was trying to make the grade according to the wrong assessment all along, right? And thank God that he learned this early enough, right, to change course, literally. And so are you trying with everything that you have to make the grade and yet it's the wrong test? that you're trying to pass. The goal of life is this attaining the resurrection of the dead. Um, it's worth everything. The, the last thing that I'll say is, is actually probably, uh, you know, so often Jesus puts things best, <laughs> as it were. Jesus tells a story, and he says, a man is walking through a field, and it seems like he kind of trips on something, and he finds this treasure in the ground, this, this priceless, unbelievable treasure. And you know what he does? He goes and sells everything he has, and he buys the field. He says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. When you discover that your life actually has meaning beyond just your simple existence, when you discover that there is a God who loves you, who has pursued you to the point of his own suffering and death, who wants to know you and have relationship with you, 
You're like someone who's walking through a field and stubbed their toe and finds these countless riches. And the only reasonable, logical thing for that person, right? Like picture, walking through a field, stumbles on it, finds this unbelievable treasure. What's your first question? Whose field is this, right? Like, whose field, right? He goes down to wherever you go to figure out who owns what. Um, where would you go? City Hall. He goes down to City Hall, and he says, whose field is that? And he finds out, oh, yeah, no, nobody owns that. Um, it's actually up for sale. It's this much. And, and, and how much it is, is is how much he has, right? Now he has to decide, is what I have more precious than what's in the ground? And this is what so much of life is, right? And let's, let's be as crazy as Jesus is in these, right? Like, like the field is $20,000. That's everything that this guy has. What's in the ground is $20 million. And we being human beings are like, is it worth it though? <laughs> Honestly, like everything I have, I'm going to have to rebuy stuff, right? Like I really like my kitchen set. I don't think Target, you know, makes it anymore or whatever, right? Like this is what we do. And this is why Jesus tells these things often in parables. He's like, come on, do the math. It's, it's the only reasonable thing. To, if this is true, what, are you going to hold on to degrees and money and success and old bitterness and old patterns of, of feeling like God has withheld from you? So you've got to go get your joy in places that he says are actually for your destruction? Come on, sell it all. You could always buy it back and it's going to come with so much more than you're giving up. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, amen, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Be there in the end. Let's pray. Father God, um, we thank you, Lord, for the way that your word can wake us up. Lord, the way that your word speaks powerfully into the very real temptations and doubts and struggles of life. God, I do pray that we would be a community um, that believes that you're worth everything. And God, that whatever competes with that, that we would be willing to suffer the loss of it. Um, and God, that, that is real suffering. It doesn't diminish the fact um, that suffering is suffering and it hurts and it's painful. Um, but Lord, what you give, the power of your resurrection, Lord, um, is what we hope in and, and why we believe that suffering is worth it. Um, and so, God, uh, yes, yeah, speak that over us. Give us experiences of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.